2: Earlier this week, a Minnesota jury found former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder on multiple counts in the death of George Floyd. For many, the guilty verdicts are a start on the path toward justice. Floyd's death last May amid a global pandemic galvanized calls for racial equity and an end to police violence. But since the Chauvin trial started late last month, more than three people a day have died at the hands of law enforcement according to the New York Times. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, we'll hear from the head of the Museum of Chinese in America, Nancy Yao Masbach, about the work she's doing to capture the fullness of Asians in America. But first, after George Floyd's death, CNN anchor Don Lemon was approached by many of his white friends. They wanted to check in, but also ask, what can we do? This planted the seed for him to write a book called This is the Fire, what I say to my friends about racism. I spoke with him last month about the book at an author event sponsored by R.J. Julia Booksellers. I asked him to talk about how he was inspired by James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time. In it, Baldwin writes, to accept one's past, one's history, is not the same thing as drowning in it.
1: James Baldwin is my literary hero um, and mentor in my head. Uh, but because the book was such a profound um, book, and it had, quite frankly, such a profound effect on me when I read it, and all one has to do is pick it up and start reading, reading it, and you won't be able to put it down. And there are many quotes uh, in that book that just sums up the world, or maybe um, the state of the world, I should say, in just one sentence. And um, this book was helping me come out as a young person when I was coming, trying to deal with my sexuality and also trying to deal with being a black um, man from the South. And so I picked up this book. And after I picked up first, um, it was Giovanni's Room from James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And the next one I read was The Fire Next Time. And once I read The Fire Next Time, I just read the entire Baldwin canon after that. So it was, it had such a profound effect. I mean, it helped me so much to understand racism in this country that I, um, that I, once I decided to write this book that I wanted to write it as a tribute to James Baldwin.
2: Baldwin was always very clear about the audience that he was writing for, about the integrity of his own voice, and realizing that regardless of the audience, there was a message that he wanted to communicate. So as you were writing this book, Who is the audience that you intended to engage with it and really to engage the issues that it contains?
1: Well, it was the the audience was America in general. And I wanted to I wanted to speak to the pain of black people. So I wanted people to um, black people to understand that I I felt I felt their I felt I felt and at the time um, I felt their pain and now and feeling their pain that I was a living embodiment of what was happening to black people in this country. So black people will read this book and say, uh-huh, uh-huh, I get it, I get it, oh, I get it, I get it. The audience that I wanted to understand that I'm trying to, um, to get to understand and really as the New York Times review put it, to believe me, like believe me that these things happen and I'm trying to help here. And um, it's white people it's and mostly white Americans. So they could understand the plight of black Americans in this country. The, the book came about during the George Floyd killing and then the protests that resulted from that. And so I I was at home. We all were at home in quarantine in the middle of a deadly pandemic. Many of us didn't know where our next meal was coming from, if we would be kicked out of our homes, if we were going to have a job, if our family members were um, quite frankly, dead or alive at some point if they happened to catch COVID, if they were going to get COVID, if you were gonna get it ourselves. And so we were sitting at home, open, vulnerable, didn't know what was happening in the state of the world. And all of a sudden you saw this black man die on TV. And all of these people started to call me, mostly my white friends, many of them young white mothers, or maybe not so young white mothers saying, I don't want my child to grow up in a world like this. I don't wanna be in a world like this. I feel like maybe I've let my black friends down or my black coworkers or my black acquaintances and just the country in general. I don't know what to do, Don. And I love you, I know you, so help me. And I said, well, okay. I mean, it was like, I guess I, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't have to teach people about things. It's not my responsibility. But then, you know, uh, Kalila, it it, it was my responsibility because I'm there every night reporting on it on CNN and everyone is watching and they're listening to what I say and they're seeing the events unfold and they saw a person die in front of their very eyes. And so after I answered a lot of letters, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, I said, you know what, I'm going to write this book. And what was the most inspirational and life altering book for me? It was The Fire Next Time who is inspiring me right now and I think who is speaking through me in this moment, I feel it's James Baldwin. And I have a great nephew at home who is about the same age as Baldwin's nephew when he wrote the fire next time. And he started the fire next time with a letter to his nephew, which was 100 years after the emancipation proclamation. And so while we were going through this event, I said, well, you know what? I want to show my great nephew, how much I love him. There are two of them. Mm -hmm. One who is old enough to understand I can't be with him. I can't spend time with him. I can't love on him. Right. Right. I'm going to sit down and write this letter. And this letter is how I'm going to start my book. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's how I did it. So who am I speaking to? I'm really speaking to everyone, but there are specific people in mind as I'm going through, um, the book and talking about, my experiences and issues that we're facing in the country and a lot of that is dedicated to white people and a lot of white women because i believe women rule the world and they will be the ones who will make the change
2: don how do you navigate that space of many people as you said last year were inundated with phone calls and and well-meaning outreach of what do we do and at the same time that can feel like a weight because now you have to figure out, what do I do with this angst that others are feeling? What do you say to people about how you navigate that? The The intimacy that you have of being in people's homes every night, but still feeling like I shouldn't have to be the representative for the things that you're experiencing in the book.
1: Well, I had to, listen, I shouldn't have to be, but I am. Um, we as African-Americans shouldn't have to be, but if you've read James Baldwin, he will tell you that we must, as much as we hate it or what have you, or it is a burden, that that, um, good thinking whites and good thinking blacks will have to insist like lovers, like we'll have to have a relationship and insist on um, purging the the America of this original sin, which is slavery and thus racism. Um, I felt in that time at the matrix of everything that was happening, going through all of these stories every night. First, it was Charlottesville and then talking about that and you know, this sort of cozying up to white supremacists that was happening from the highest office in the land. Then Ahmaud Arbery died, right? In front of our very eyes with a shotgun on, on a street while jogging in Brunswick, Georgia. And then Breonna Taylor died in her bed and then George Floyd in front of her eyes. And here I am every night reporting on these things. And I said, who else can write this book at this moment? I'm the only black person in prime time and cable. And guess where that conversation was turning every single night. And I said, if people are gonna rely on me and they're gonna ask me what to do, then I'm gonna write a book and I'm gonna take on that responsibility. I'm not gonna look at it as a burden. I'm gonna look at it um, as a blessing. And that blessing will be to be honest and candid with people and tell them what they needed to do And I started doing that first on my show, then on a podcast where I said, silence is not an option, except in one case. I, I, silence is an option when you're listening. Mm -hmm. And so my, the first thing I said was, you gotta first do something if you can, if you wanna get out on the streets, if you wanna fight for something, if you wanna take a position on something, you have to fight for it. But the second thing you must do is to listen. And so that was my initial piece of advice for people. And then from there, if you read the book, I go on and I give advice. This is not like, you know, it's not a primer on, you know, how to cure race. And I say, I know I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers, but I know how you start the conversation and I know how you start the work. And then we go from there.
2: You know, one of the things that I, I like about this book too, Don, is that this is not just a journalistic account. You're not just talking about the things that have happened historically or or what we've experienced over the last year. This is a deeply personal book. And one of the pieces that struck me, given what you just said about voting, is the conversations that you had with your grandmother, your beloved mommy, Right. And when she talks about being in Louisiana and being turned away from trying to register and vote by all of these ridiculous tactics, that having that piece of understanding that even when you try to assert your position, there will be those who deny you. Talk to us about her imprint on your life and why you thought it was important to include that in the book.
1: Well, that's happening now, isn't it? It's the same thing, but they're trying to do it like, uh, well, it was legal then, but they're trying to change the laws to do the same thing now. Her imprint on my life is huge. I mean, I grew up and she was my best friend. But um, my connection to her was that I would sit around the table. We had this kitchen table. You remember the old with the plastic chairs and the Formica top? And of it was like yellow, like the color of your glass is yellow mm-hmm. or a brighter yellow. Or it would be a baby blue and it would match the, the metal cabinets on the wall. So it was one of those kitchen tables. And we would sit around and I would do my homework. You know as a little kid and it was first or second grade and i was learning to read but what i learned was that my grandmother couldn't really read she had she struggled reading with reading because she was denied an education she had a fifth grade education and so as we would sit around and she would try to help me with my homework but her helping me with my homework was just her being there making sure that i did it and offering me some companionship and some company she would tell me these stories about she'd say yeah I, you know in the reading and i couldn't read and i would go to the polling place and we would go vote and they would say how many soap bubbles in a bar so how many jelly beans in this here jar draw a line and with a circle a circle around it and you know so on and so on and so on and she goes and these math problems are like that to me baby i don't understand them and i look at her and i go you're kidding me right like that did not happen. And she'd say, yeah. And she'd tell me all of these stories and she would say, and then the white people would walk right up and they'd go, hey, Mr. Such-and-such, hey, Mr., come right on in. But they wouldn't let us vote, baby. And that was my introduction into the world. And I, do- I doubt that there were white kids who were my age, who were sitting around the table, whose grandmothers couldn't read and were telling them the stories about how they were disenfranchised at the voting booth. That was one example. And when, you know. There were stories about redlining and not being able to live in certain neighborhoods and we had to live where we had to live because this is where black people live and on and on and on and not getting a job or not getting a promotion. Those were the kinds of stories that were told around my table that white families don't have those stories told to them. The stories that are told is that you get an education, you do your homework, you can grow up, you can do and be anything you want. Well, I got those stories as well, but I also got the other stories about the hindrances and how people really looked upon us as um, as property, not human beings.
2: Don Lemon is a CNN anchor and author of This is the Fire, what I say to my friends about racism. When we come back, he'll talk about what he learned on a trip to Africa to learn more about his ancestry. And later, we'll hear from the head of the Museum of Chinese in America about how she's educating people about the history of anti-Asian discrimination. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, Nancy Yao Mosbach, president of the Museum of Chinese in America, talks about the discrimination against Asian communities and how we can better understand its current connection. Now let's get back to our conversation with CNN anchor, Don Lemon. It was taped last month at an event sponsored by RJ Julia. Lemon's new book is called, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. I asked him about the experience of journeying to Africa with his mother to learn more about his ancestral history.
1: Yeah, and also to connect with my future, to change the trajectory of my future and my thinking, the way that I thought about what, who I am and where I came from and what I could achieve. But the, it was a deeply personal experience that I had with my mother. Um, my mom and I both went to Ghana um and you know we were going to go i think to kenya or something but it was too dangerous at the time because there was conflict going on and um so cnn sent us to ghana to one of the slave uh we, it was uh, cape coast castle which was uh one of the places where slaves were housed before they were shipped across the atlantic and so um I went, and, and it was for a Finding Your Roots segment for CNN. So they did our ancestry and we talked about all of our ancestry in Louisiana. And then we had to deal with our ancestry, which was much harder to come by to Africa because there are no records because we were property. Mm-hmm. And so we went to where the DNA took us. And some of that was uh, Ghanaian, but uh, also it was, I think there's uh, 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 Kenyan and Nairobi and something I forget exactly the, the makeup of my, my ancestry. And... So we went to this castle where slaves would, be, would come in and they would be temporarily housed and they would be shackled and it was supposed to be a place where they were supposed to stay for just a few hours perhaps before they went off across and so many of them ended up staying for days and weeks and even months and if they survived they were taken out of that and into another place that they were housed just for a moment before they went out to the slave ship. And so as, a, as, a, uh, as you're going out to the slave ship, there is a door with an arch in it and over the door it reads door of no return. And going on that journey with my mother and walking through that door of no return and as you open it up, there is this beautiful ocean that is out there in a beach. And there were all of these kids playing in the water, some of them naked, just being kids. Mm -hmm. just frolicking in the water with not a care in the world. And you can only imagine what was happening. These people were being sold into slavery and they were taking a journey on a slave ship in the bottom of a slave ship, hot as hell or freezing depending on the temperature across a long journey across the water. And many of them would not make it. And um, the guy who was our our tour told us that, Many of them tried to run when they got there because they didn't want to get on those ships and they either drowned or they were shot and killed. And so it became so emotional. I thought I was this big guy and that, you know, I I could take it. And it it was so emotional that both my mom and I broke down and we started crying. And um, I can't, I I can't think of his name of a guide. And he said, but I'm going to tell you something that's more positive. And what we have done here, As we have changed the name, because you've come to America, you've come from America with your ancestors having survived the long journey, not only across the ocean, but the long journey for hundreds of years of slavery and discrimination in America. And now you're back and experiencing this. And we have changed the name, the Door of Return. And so I want you to turn around, we wanna welcome you back into your homeland to the door of return and that changed my life. That changed my life because as I sat there after experiencing that and shooting the video, my mom and I sat by the sea that night, we had a glass of wine and she told me and I told her we're survivors and that there was nothing that America could do to us that would take away our spirit of surviving. And that there was nothing that I couldn't accomplish. So I came back with an even bigger spirit of accomplishment. And you can't, as I say, you can't tell me nothing. And she said, as she said on television, well, first of all, she said to me, you have taken me places and you've showed me things that I never thought that I was experiencing. What experience? And I thought like, I should be doing that to you because I'm the mother, right? Mm-hmm. But you're the child, and you've showed me that, and so you are indeed a blessing to me. And then once we did the show, same thing, and I'm crying like a baby, and she said, we went, and she said, "We, we went and we did it first class." <laughs> and she said, if "That's not God." I don't know what is, and I wish everyone could have had that experience because perhaps instead of breaking people's spirit, it would help to build their spirit. Mm. That is as, as a as a people that we could build uh, a unity that we don't have and a generational wealth that we are lacking, and and it would help to heal a spirit that is broken. And
2: mm. I think
1: in African Americans
2: and Don, for so many people who have helped build this country, and whose labor was not properly rewarded for that. There is now this concern that there are forces in people, in political parties, in organizations that are trying to destroy that. And you say something in the book that, you know, I'll be honest with you, I was really struck by this, this part of the book, because you said that, in some ways, Donald Trump was the wake-up call that America needed. You talk about racism as a cancer in the country. And Don, there's a fear that we all know that cancer does not leave a body unscathed even if you go into remission. That there's always this fear of it coming back, but also the damage that is done. Why do you think Donald Trump was a wake up call that we needed?
1: Because I think um, people were lulled into um, this false sense of, you know, that we were perhaps in had entered or somehow entering into a post racial society. Well, we elected a black man for president, you know, Barack Obama, we can't be a racist country, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, you have Donald Trump come along and um, exploits the racial and political um, and what ethnic and economic divisions in the country. He uses that to his advantage rather than trying to unify that and bring people together on those issues. And that divide. In the middle of that, it was like parting the waters, right? And then you see all the racists, here they come. and came up out of that like, oh yeah, we're legitimized now, very fine people on both sides. The cops can be rough with you know, African-Americans or with, with suspects, or there is no systemic racism, or you know, what do you have to lose? All of those things that he exploited. And, that, and not even that, that you, didn't, that you didn't have to be civil or treat your fellow countrymen with dignity. And so it was, it was, as I say in the book, it was like the perseverating ulcer or tumor or sore or something that I said that drives us into the oncologist's office. And then we get the problem diagnosed and then we either excise it or we do the chemotherapy or whatever it is that we have to do to remove it. And so um, I don't think that that would look, would it have been better not to have that sort of division? But I think it was what we needed to see the racists, to see who, not all of our neighbors, but to see who many of our neighbors are. And we see it, the racism is out there in full force and we see it every single day, every single night on the news, I'm reporting on someone calling uh, girls basketball, high school basketball team, the N word. Someone talking about saying, uh, calling black farmers out of their name. Um, Senators saying that, well, I wasn't scared because the people at the insurrection were, you know, uh, they were Trump supporters. And so I didn't think they were gonna harm me. What was he saying? That they were white people. Mm-hmm. But I would be afraid if, it's, if it was Black Lives Matter and Antifa, what was it? I'm afraid of black people. You see who the racists are, it exposed them because they thought that they were legitimate and they think that they are now. They didn't have to be in hoods. They could march in Charlottesville with khakis and tiki torches.
2: There's no excuse anymore for people to say that they don't know that now that it is out in the open, the things that people have been experiencing and talking about for decades, now that it's out in the open, you mentioned in your book that when these situations happen and, and when people encounter these experiences, there are three questions that they should consider. I had the opportunity to know, and this is what I chose to believe. I had an opportunity to speak. And this is what I chose to say. I had an opportunity to act. And this is what I chose to do. Don Lemon, what is it that you want people to choose to do in this moment, but also as we prepare for the next moments?
1: I wanted to do, as I interviewed um, my brother from Brooklyn yesterday, Spike Lee, I want them to do the right thing. (laughs) I want them to do the work. I want them to have an open heart and an open mind. I, I want them not to be aggrieved by the, not to be worried about a conversation that may be uncomfortable for them, or not to be aggrieved by the actual thought that someone may think that they have a racial blind spot, or even that they're racist, or even that they uh, have an unconscious bias. I want, Well, maybe I do. Maybe I do have that. And, and maybe I don't. But I don't have to be offended by someone thinking that. What I have to do is try to understand why that other person may think that. Because when you become offended and you become aggrieved about that, then you make it about you rather than the actual act of racism. And what you do is you, what you do when you make it about yourself, what is that? That's entitlement. That's privilege because you never really had to to deal with it. And so it doesn't exist for you. So if someone's calling you out on something that you've been blind to and you take offense to it, well, maybe there is some truth to it. And so I'm afraid of someone calling me something or afraid of someone, um, you know, having a heated conversation with me about something. Don't be afraid of that. Be open. But then beyond that, listen and then do the work. You've got to meet people who don't look like you. And I, and I ask everyone who reads a book and everyone who can hear this interview or and, and will hear this interview, look around you in your house, in your street, in your neighborhood, in your community. Who do you interact with? Is it people who just look like you and think like you? Are there, are there people in your neighborhood, in your community who maybe are not like you? Maybe it's a Latino uh, family who um, goes to school with your kid. When you see them, do you engage with them? Do you invite them over for barbecues? Do you invite them to play baseball or something with your family where you're going? Do you invite them fishing? Do you invite them to a movie? Do you ask them to go out to dinner? Do you do that? If you don't, you're the problem. It's not that hard, but we we think we try to, you know, oh, I just don't have time. Okay, you have time to take your kid to ballet practice. Do you really think your does every parent really think their daughter is going to be a ballet dancer? But what your child is going to have to do is grow up in a world where there are people around them who don't look like them. Perhaps you should be spending some of that time and some of those lessons on issues of diversity, on issues that will help to improve your, your country and your relationship with your countrymen.
2: I want to end our conversation together where the book starts, which, as you said, is with this letter to your great-nephew. And we are now almost a year to George Floyd being killed. It's been a year since Breonna Taylor was killed. In the face of all of that and, and all that people are doing and navigating, what's the message that you would send to young people?
1: Um the message I would send to young people is um, be optimistic, be open and be hopeful. I am optimistic about our future. The message that I would send to young people is um, that you don't have to be, you don't have to do exactly what your parents did or what your parents are doing. The message that I would send to young people is what the, what my dad would say to my mom when I was growing up and I would just go over and talk to people at a restaurant and say, what are you doing here? Are you guys on vacation? Which part of town do you live? Oh, we live over on this street. And just, and I would say to become curious rather than judgmental, to become curious about their neighbor. And I would send a message to young people to demand that their education somehow includes the real history of this country and not just the whitewashed history um, that is used to uh, elevate some, and denigrate others. That's what I would say. But I would say America is, um, I believe that America is going to continue towards uh, the promise of this country, which is a more perfect union. And if we would just do the work, that's where we'll head. If we don't do the work, then shame on us.
2: Don Lemon is anchor of CNN Tonight and author of This is the Fire. What I say to my friends about racism. I spoke to him last month as part of an event sponsored by RJ Julia. Coming up, I sit down with the head of the Museum of Chinese in America. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Blacks and Asian Americans are more likely than any other groups to feel discriminated against during the coronavirus pandemic. That's according to a recent Pew study. Nancy Yao Masbach is head of the Museum of Chinese in America, or MOCA. MOCA is located in New York City and works to provide an historical context around Chinese community experiences here in the United States. From their role in building the Transcontinental Railroad to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that barred them from citizenship, Ask Nancy to talk about that history and how it shapes the work she does at the museum today.
0: It's grounded in history. This racism is grounded in history. And it's not the racism just against Chinese people in this America. It's the racism that's systemic to this country. And I think that's the fundamental headline we always have to grasp back to. It's not the Chinese Americans or Asian Americans moment to be the target of racism. This is racism that is endemic. It is racism that is a culture in this country. And for Chinese in America, you know, we Chinese in America have been here for 200 years. Um, and yet, do I often still get the question, where are you really from? Um, the assumption that one, Asian Americans are perpetually foreign, um, and two, that we are less American. Um, and, and, and the irony here is many Asian Americans, generation after generation, people left their native homes to come here. They chose America. And in Chinese, America is called the beautiful country, Guo. So that's why Chinese people came here to begin with. They wanted to help build the country. They built the railroads. They wanted to, you know, rush for gold. They wanted all these push and pull factors to create a new life in this country. And after completing the transcontinental railroad, they were they became a threat and threatened laborers of European um, descent, um, and therefore the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was then enacted. And subsequent to that. 1943, not until 1965, the discrimination has always been there. This is not new at all. This is just incited. It's been catalyzed um, as of March 11th, 2020, when references to a foreign virus and then specifically the Chinese virus were made for by the foreign administration. Um, it was stoked.
2: One of the things that I don't think people fully grasp is that the Chinese Exclusion Act was built on this notion that people could come here, they could work here, they could help build the railroad and help create economic development for the United States, but were excluded from citizenship because of this fear of what would happen if people stayed here. And in the work of Mocha, you also talk about the, the internal dynamics of how the stereotypes about women from China then gets embedded into all of this and how these things persist. What's missing from our national conversation about racism and the racism that is experienced by Asian Americans?
0: You know, if we um, in the BIPOC marginalized communities think and are afraid that this is just a moment I keep thinking about what about the non-BIPOC marginalized people? They're hoping it's just a moment. And and that is something that I keep thinking about because when we're in these conversations, I'm afraid I'm in them in a vacuum. And and what is missing is the fundamental educational text that needs to be introduced in pre-K, in kindergarten, that needs to have an arc until fifth grade so we can actually see one another as not one part of the melting pot, but as individual melting pots. And to be honest, I don't understand why this concept is so difficult. And then I do understand why it's so difficult because people are trying to maintain their power. Um, And the power part is the threat, right? And and when people are threatened, when, 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 and the irony here is the Chinese laborers were really revered as being incredible workers, like having this incredible work ethic Um, and having the wherewithal to boil their water so they wouldn't get sick from contaminated water like some of the other workers. They were revered as, oh, get the Chinese laborers because they built that wall, Leland Stanford. And, And so it was because they were a threat. And this is constantly repeated over and over again in history. Threat. Mexican laborers are a threat. Chinese laborers are a threat. Um, it, Japanese people are buying up the real estate in Manhattan. They are a threat. Threat to what? To white power. And, and, and I think that that's where we are, 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 are not really, the, the, the part that's missing is this has to be a systemic change in the classroom at a very young age. And we're going to hit a lot of multi-generational clashes, um, but we can only be that incredible melting pot of melting pots if we can get the story right in the beginning, the whole narrative, if I were the Department of Education secretary, I would take every textbook and trash it and burn it and start new. And until we can actually get the textbooks written in a way that's representative, and again, not a collection of moments, but a space where we can all be individual melting pods, Let's, until we can do that, supplement your context with visits to museums, supplement it with, you know, individual pop-up newsletters from Scholastic, McGraw-Hill, whatever it might be. But let's not keep teaching kids from these textbooks.
2: And the other thing I think that we teach kids whether it's explicitly or implicitly is what you alluded to, which is this model minority myth that, you know, people of Asian descent are inherently more intelligent or better at particular subjects. And that somehow gives them an advantage. And one of the things that you have talked about and also showcased at Mocha is how that myth is really damaging and detrimental because it does not highlight the diversity within communities, but it also gets used against people to stoke that fear in educational settings, in workplaces. How do we dismantle that myth?
0: There is a real desire to compartmentalize to stereotype, to generalize in this country, I guess we think it's easier, and, and that exactly is right, Kyla. The model minority myth, the better at math, um, it, it's it's this, it, it's it's really based in again that fear. But how do we break it down? Um, we need to understand the diversity of Asian American Pacific Islanders. Uh, first of all, the diversity of Chinese people. China is one of the most diverse countries. They have over 100 dialects. Granted, it's relatively more homogenous, obviously much more than the United States. But at the same time, there is a massive diversity. And then you just look at the last 100 years of Chinese history, political change, you know, regime falling, civil war, poverty to billionaire. I mean, it's like the This massive story of massive volatility, Chinese capitalism from severe socialism, and and, and all of this, or Chinese socialism, however you want to refer to it, um, but it's this diverse, diverse, non homogeneous. And also, when you think about the experience of Chinese in this country, you know, you had the early laborers from southern China come up 200 years ago. And then you have very well-educated PhDs, postdocs, you know, coming in the last 20 years, inventing vaccines and starting companies like Zoom. And yet we're still not American enough. So I think the question is really, when does one actually become American enough for you, Mr. Person, Mrs. Person, whomever person, who doesn't think that I'm ever going to be American enough? I think that's the fundamental question. What does it mean to be American? Can we get that question right? And and let's 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 actually have a real conversation about it. And we got to meet people where they are. I think that that's really a big part of it.
2: So let's talk about the museum because part of the work of the museum is telling those stories plural affirming the diversity of experience. And yet there is this intersection of, at a moment when telling that story was most needed, you were forced to shut the doors of the museum because of the pandemic, and you've been closed for more than a year. How have you weathered that as an institution, and what are your plans to reopen?
0: So MOCA actually had a bit of a triple threat. Um, So as of January 2nd, when schools came back, especially in New York City, the classrooms canceled their trips to the museum. There was that fear that this virus might be coming from China um, and Chinatown therefore must have it. Uh, it and, and it's it's so bizarre because Chinatown now is multi-generational. It's probably second, third generation and don't have as great a connection with China as some other communities. Uh, so that was happening. Then we had this five alarm fire in our collection site right before Lunar new year and then COVID hit. So the combined triple whammy, boom, 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 really gave us the pivot strength, you know, that strength to like, okay, how how do you make a decision now? So we were almost already pivoting and strengthening through that pivot because that's what what happens when people need to constantly think and make change. But then we shuttered our doors um, just given the state of New York City and the fear on March 15th. We quickly went to virtual, Um, in large part because we wanted to stay relevant and do the work that the MOCA has to do. We need to help build that building, that foundation. We're not an advocacy organization, we're a museum of history. So I think what we always say is this work is urgent. Um, This work is urgent to the national discourse on identity and on conscience. This isn't the discourse about, oh, it's my moment now because I'm Chinese-American. No, that is not what MOCA is about. MOCA goes into this portfolio of museums in this country that supplement the work in the classroom and then can help each one of us identify that Americanness. ness and, and so right now, what we wanted to do also was show the positivity around some of the transnational character of the Chinese diaspora. So we saw people needed um, equipment, people needed uh, uh, PPE, they, they, they PPP and they, they personal equipment and, and the masks. And so we saw this transnational network of you know, people in Beijing connecting with people in Changsha, connecting to people in New Haven. You know, Yale China Association was sourcing different materials and equipment. We saw all of this happening all over the country. Alumni associations of, you know, Chinese Chinese people in America were connecting with their, uh, you know, undergraduate institutions and they were sourcing and supplied a lot of that early equipment that came into the country when we couldn't find any N95s. And I lived in Hong Kong during SARS. N95 showed up the next day on my desk. Everyone had like two boxes of N95s. And it's a societal thing where you're not protecting yourself, you're also protecting society. So like the whole philosophy was like, oh, they have to get N95s. Let's get our resources together. And there were heroic efforts in doing that. And that's some of the positivity that we started taking down those stories. And subsequent to that, we, we noticed that we had well over 200 stories collected. And then we saw the stoking of the Chinese virus We saw this today, we saw this coming 16 months ago. Well, this is not new. And so we started collecting the stories about the racism, the acts of violence. Um, So on July 15th, amazing, wonderful opportunity, we're going to reopen our doors and we are going to place on view the stories we've collected over the last 18 months, both positive um, and some of the anti-AAPI hate crimes. And there's going to be an element that's immersive um, to try to give people who have never experienced racism in this country, and there are many, there are the majority have not experienced racism in this country an experience around that. And also to really collect and record and remember these moments. Um, and also in the hopes of really creating respect around around the possibility of Americanness that is truer than it is today.
2: Nancy Yao Ma Spock is president of Museum of Chinese in America. Nancy, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Anna Elizabeth, and Katie Tolarski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.